HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cowgirl Creamery, a company located in Point Reyes Station, California, which manufactures artisanal cheeses. For more information, visit cowgirlcreamery.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Talking about a revolution today on A Taste of the Past. It's hard to believe that as shortly ago, I say shortly, you might say long ago, as the 1970s, words on menus and in food such as local, pasture-raised, field greens, those were unheard of. Those were unknown terms uh, for restaurateurs, for, for menus. And it all came about because a group of creative and innovative chefs from California decided to create a dining experience that was very different from what had been around. They were enjoying, you could say maybe a part of the hippie movement, whatever, enjoying the organic production of produce, um, but basically enjoying the wonderful bounty of, of California's produce and, and their goods and, and taking advantage of that and putting on the menu where their food came from, calling it by the names of what it was. Didn't have to use French terms. It could be American food. And these chefs really did create a revolution. And that revolution in food suddenly became known as California cuisine. Went out today. What does California cuisine mean to you? Then it was really a big thing. And certainly if I mention the name Alice Waters, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, even before Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse, there were several chefs and cheesemakers, Laura Chanel making goat cheese. Um, Sally Schmidt, believe it or not, had a restaurant, the French Laundry, before we knew of the French Laundry from Thomas Keller. There were so many chefs with restaurants that were using local bounty in California and doing very 
I'd hate to use the word clean cooking, but it was very, um, what we might say, modern food on the plate. Well, this, of course, this revolution spread. And uh, 30 years later, we now kind of take it for granted that we open a menu and a dish will be called, you know, grilled pork. But then underneath it will be where the pork came from, what ingredients are used in the dish. Now, this you have to understand totally revolutionary you know you used to be you know must might say a you know uh pork chop a la whatever uh, you know a la smith's and that's all you knew about it and now you know very intricate details about the food you eat and of course what is recent is our whole locavore movement throughout the country and that we do have to credit california for California is um, is still very much, I think, in a game player, game changer, because I guess it would have to be because of their their wonderful growing seasons. One of the people who, um, well, actually, the person who chronicled this, the history of this food revolution, is Joyce Goldstein. And Joyce was herself one of the early revolutionaries. She cooked at Chez Panisse, and she observed a lot of these changes happening. Joyce was teaching in the 60s. She was teaching cooking lessons. And um, and then she went and cooked at Alice Waters Chez Panisse for a few years, and then finally decided, well, this is after having lived in Italy and, and I say kind of, you know, earned her chops or awakened her taste buds, she opened her own restaurant in 1984 called Square One. By then, she was already a a seasoned chef and a a seasoned cooking teacher. She actually won. It was such a a groundbreaking restaurant. Uh, It was was presenting kind of an eclectic blend of Italian, Spanish, French, Greek, Middle Eastern, North African cuisine. And that was... That too was revolutionary to have that a medit as we call Mediterranean restaurant. We didn't have restaurants that were just billed as Mediterranean in those days, and then you know soon after that there were plenty of them. But it was it was such a fine restaurant and gra- so groundbreaking. She won the award for best chef in California in 1993, and in 2005 Joyce was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Women Chefs and Restaurateurs, which she was one of the founding members. Um, she's actually she's also in the Who's Who in food, and um, Joyce has has continued even though she closed the restaurant 12 years after it opened. Um, she continued to be a strong voice in the food world. She's a consultant and, and has been a consultant to so many projects and teaching and a consultant to other people in, in the development of what they teach in the food. And she um, writes a lot of cookbooks, has written oh, over a dozen cookbooks on Mediterranean food particularly. And in 2000. 2003, 2013, she published a book called Inside the California Food Revolution, 30 Years That Changed Our Culinary Consciousness. And I think that's what I was trying to get at when I was the long explanation of, of the, the California cuisine and the revolution is that it was a mindset. It was a, we suddenly became aware of the food on our plate. It wasn't just 
oh, we're going out for dinner and a perfunctory meal. We were, we became aware of what we were eating, who grew the food, in some instances, who made the plate. <laughs> we, but it is very mindful eating, and uh, we credit a lot of that to these chefs, and certainly also to Joyce Goldstein. Later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to Joyce, and she, and we're also going to be talking about her brand new book. It's hot off the press, and it's no surprise that the Mediterranean comes back into play again. We're going to be talking about the new Mediterranean Jewish table, old world recipes for the modern home. So again, Joyce has gone back to her love of, of the Mediterranean region and brought back all those flavors and spices and old-world foods that um, of Italian, um, uh, Moroccan, Tunisian, really wonderful, intricate flavors. And she sort of updated them so that we can have those same dishes on our plate today with all our modern equipment that we use and our but also still once again she hasn't lost her eye towards the local product so stay with us and we will be back in just a few with joyce goldstein is brought to you by Cowgirl Creamery, a company located in Point Reyes Station, California, which manufactures artisanal cheeses. In 1997, Sue Conley and Peggy Smith opened Cowgirl Creamery in Point Reyes Station, a picturesque postage stamp of a town on the coast about an hour north of San Francisco. They started with an old barn, made it beautiful, put in a small plant for making handcrafted cheese, bought organic milk from the neighbor, Strauss Family Creamery, and before long, the world found them. Cowgirl Creamery cheeses are sold to over 500 stores, independent cheese shops, farmers markets, and restaurants, and nationally through Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit cowgirlcreamery.com. Hi. At the top of the show, we were talking about Joyce Goldstein and how she took part in the California Food Revolution and talked a lot about her book, Inside the California Food Revolution. And now she's branched out into her newest book, but yet, back to the old again, the Mediterranean food, with the new Mediterranean Jewish table, old world recipes for the modern home. And for thousands of years, the people of the Jewish diaspora have carried their culinary traditions and kosher laws throughout the world. 
In the United States, what we primarily think of as Jewish foods around this holiday time are, are mostly the Ashkenazi table, the matzo ball soup, the knishes, the brisket, the gefilte fish. But Joyce has expanded that menu with this comprehensive collection of over 400 recipes from the kitchens of the three Mediterranean Jewish cultures, the Sephardic, the Maghrebi, and the Mizrahi. The new Jewish The new Mediterranean Jewish table is an authoritative guide to Jewish home cooking in North Africa, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Spain, Portugal, and the Middle East. Joyce, it sounds kind of like your restaurant, Square One. Welcome. Well, in fact, fact, this is where it all began. Uh, In 1986 or 87, my customers knew that Passover was coming, and they said, we don't want to do the cooking. We want you to make Passover foods. So for the entire week, every every year at Passover, we cooked Mediterranean Jewish food. And that set me on the path of doing a lot of research because Square One was a Mediterranean restaurant. I didn't want to be doing Ashkenazi food. It didn't fit where we were going with our food. And so I went to the library. I talked to people of various heritages that lived in town. And, um, you know, one year we did all Italian. Another year we did uh, Moroccan Seder meal. Uh, We did Sephardic, sort of mixture of Greek and Turkish Jews. And it was very well received. And that, that sort of got me on the path to discovering a lot of these delicious dishes. Well, it, it's wonderful because so many of these dishes that are described in your book, are, you know, are, are the, what we think of as California cuisine a lot, but yet with the you know the heavily added spices with the the further south we go in the um, in the recipes, but a lot of fresh vegetables and you know smaller portions of meat. Uh, now you. Um, you talk about the three different cultures. Can you describe those three different cultures in the areas that you cover in, in of terms course. of the recipes? Uh, the Sephardic Jews are the Jews that lived in Spain and Portugal. And in 1492, after the Spanish Inquisition, they were expelled from the country and um, wended their way. Some made it into Italy. Uh, most of them made it to Greece and Turkey, like the island of Rhodes has a huge Sephardic community in Istanbul. You still have so many Jews. Uh, and they were welcomed there, and their cooking evolved. I have a Turkish cookbook and a Spanish Jewish cookbook, and the recipes are very, very close. But, you know, you see what your neighbors are cooking. These are fairly open communities, unlike the Ashkenazi communities, which are fairly closed. The Sephardic community talked to their neighbors, saw what was being grown, and asked people what they were cooking, and made their recipes to follow this, but staying within the kosher laws. The other Jews are the Maghrebi Jews, who are in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. These are North African. Mm-hmm. And um, again, another unique approach to traditional food. I mean, if you look at it, you'd say, well, it's just a Moroccan dish. But it isn't, because it follows the kosher laws. And you won't find any dairy with meat. Uh, you Like in, in Greece, when you have moussaka with the dairy topping and the lamb, you won't do that if you're following a Jewish recipe. There will be no dairy topping. You'll mm-hmm. find another way to top it. Um, and then you get to the Mizrahi Jews, that are the Jews that have been living in Muslim lands. They were called people of the book for since biblical times. So these are the Jews in Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, Lebanon, Jordan. And 
again, a very strong tradition of local food, but no no tzatziki on a kebab, no dairy <laughs> sauces on, right. on meat, um, no shellfish. So the requirements of staying within the laws of, of kashrut are followed, but the local food is the local food. So when you look at it, you say, yeah, well, that looks pretty pretty Greek to me or pretty Moroccan. It is, but cooked by Jews. Well, I liked how you you described in the book, uh, you described the different flavors. And as I I mentioned before, sort of like the further south, if you will, you know, that you go, the the more intense some of the the spice flavors are. But, and as you mentioned, a lot of these um, people lived along the spice route. Um, The Italian, you say the Italians... Uh, the f- seasonings were a little more austere, uncomplicated, clean. Um, and then you go on to talk about the, um, you know, the progression of the, of the spices and the additives. Um, why do you think this is? Well, again, partly having to do with climate, but partly having to do with tradition. Um, when I was thinking about the other day of all the meat and fruit stews, which really began in Iran, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, Iran doesn't have very spicy food. They're using some cardamom, a little rose water, some turmeric, maybe a pinch of cinnamon, but it's it's not a spicy cuisine. And then those fruit and meat stews work their way up to Morocco, where they pick on a lot, pick up a lot more spices. I mean, cinnamon and cumin, or the rafal hanout, the mixture of spices. And then those same fruit and meat stews work their way up to Catalan, Spain, but there they're not so spicy. It's a subtler palate. So a similar dish can work its way through different cultures, but because of the spices that people are used to using, um, it can be mild. It can be intense. Um, you know, you go to Tunisia, it's amped up with heat. They're the Harissa people. Mm-hmm. But you won't find that in, in Turkey, and you certainly won't find it in Iran. You know, so, so you have to know how that dish got there and what the flavor palettes are. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, uh, in the intro, and that was the, the publisher's intro, that um, so often... We think of at around the Jewish holidays. We think of the Ashkenazi dishes. You, th- you mentioned to somebody, well, Jewish food, and they think, oh yeah, you know, we got uh, some brisket here and some, you know, bagels. <laughs> exactly. and, and Joan Nathan is, was a, a big proponent of introducing the other. They said, well, if you go to India, it's Indian food, but it's you know follows the kosher laws. If you go to France, it's you know it's more French. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think it's it's a shame in a way. But you see, most of the Jews that came to the United States came from Eastern Europe, and they landed on the East Coast, which is, of course, media central. Mm-hmm. And so this image of Jewish food is, you know, borscht and brisket and latkes and all of this stuff, mm-hmm. which is wonderful food, but you can't make a lifetime of it. I mean, it's really not good for your health. It's, it's a very meat and meat-intensive diet. And everybody in this country knows that the Mediterranean diet is the healthiest diet you could possibly have and varied. 
And yet people didn't make this connection of Mediterranean diet, Jewish food. And yet you think, I mean, there were zillions of Jews in the Middle East and North Africa and in parts of, you know, around the Mediterranean. But they didn't emigrate here in any number. So most people don't know this food except now with all the press that the Israeli chefs are getting, people are starting to say, oh, that's what Jewish food, that's another aspect of Jewish food, shashuka and hummus right. and all this stuff. Right. But in fact, this food was around before there was an Israel. You know? <laughs> that's interesting. Um, and, you know, it's something else that, that um, well, a question that, before I get to the something else, the question I wanted to ask you is, it, and now you say these are old world recipes for the modern kitchen. In what ways have you um, changed the recipes or made them more modern? In, is well, there a particular um, method that you can say that you that was changed? Well, it depends. I always make, when I get a recipe, I cook it straight the first time, mm-hmm. and I taste it, and I evaluate it. Uh, sometimes it seems a little flat. Why does it seem a little flat? Because Americans now have a palate that's been amped up by eating a diversity of cuisines. We have Thai one night. We might have Mexican, then Italian, then Chinese. So we're, we're used to flavors that are a little more intense, and... A lot of these dishes are pretty laid back. They were just based on good ingredients. So what I've done for some of the recipes is I've added lemon juice or lemon zest to brighten them. I've increased sometimes the onions and garlic. Sometimes I've increased the spices because the spices in the Middle East are so much more intense and fresh than, you know, the jars of spices that are in our supermarket that have been sitting there for God knows how long. So sometimes I double the cinnamon or double the cumin because it just, you know, seemed a little flat. The other thing I did is reorganize the process of making the recipe. You know, in the old days, women stayed home. That's all they did. They cooked. They didn't have outside jobs. And so there was time for cooking. And being efficient, it wasn't really an issue. Mm -hmm. But I looked at these recipes with a chef's eye. Like, what should you do first? What could you do second? Is there anything that you could do ahead of time? And so I reorganized the steps in the recipe and sometimes condense them so that they would be more efficient. And so those are what I've done for the modern table. Mm-hmm. Well, you also gave a beautiful description in the book about um, the tradition of many of these people's cooking, let's say team cooking, that the women, that's how they spent their time. Um, and we're talking further back than just, you know, when when the women were doing the cooking and didn't have jobs. But this was when all the women would get together and prep these meals for the for an entire group of people who are family, um, I, so how has that changed the way we approach food? Well, first of all, I miss those days where a bunch of women sat around a table folding little pastries and talking and having tea. And I mean, because certain dishes people won't make unless they can get a friend to join them. I mean, it takes the time. Uh, so, but there was that sense of community. I remember reading about an Algerian household built around a courtyard, and for Passover, they would make all the matzahs for all the families over a series of days, like a communal effort. 
But today, you know, we people cook at home. Some don't cook very much at all. Sometimes they don't open a book until the holidays come, which is sort of a shame. So they get out of the rhythm of it. And we, um, we have to give them recipes that are a lot more detailed. I mean, if you read Elizabeth David, she'll say, add a glug of olive oil or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And here you want to know, is that two tablespoons? Is that three? What size is the pan? How high is the heat? We have to lead people through because they don't have a tradition of cooking with other family members in the household. And it's a shame that that's been lost. Right, right. And then again, as you said, many of them don't cook at all. And so, so many of the, as you mentioned, particularly the, the pastries, pastry, in, that's such a fun and wonderful thing to do and tastes so much better when they're homemade. So what do we usually go to the bakery and buy them all, right? Right. Well, and it's somebody else's job, and they're doing it. But I think you miss some of the pleasures. I know when my kids were small, I'd have them stuff and roll grape leaves with me. We'd lay them all out on the table. We'd put the filling, and then everybody would fold in the sides and roll and roll and roll. And it was sort of fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now everybody's too too busy to do it. I like making them because I think cooking is a meditation, and I like to take the time to do it. It's a great way to sort of clear your mind and relax because I'm not in a rush. I want right. to enjoy doing it. I right. put up a lot of preserves, and that's meditation, the whole ritual of sterilizing the jars and stirring and filling and whole thing just sort of calms you down. It's a beautiful thing. Right. It's wonderful to have the time to you know to spend and devote to that. And Yes, in this society, we're, we're always in a rush and working too hard, and I'm wondering if we're just you know forgetting the, the good things. Um, well, we're rushing, rushing, rushing to get to the finish line, and when we get there, we're going to be finished, so I think we should try and <laughs> slow it down. Yeah, right, you're right. Um, you know, it's interesting you said uh, how some of these these um, new dishes and the popularity of, of some of the new Israeli chefs, uh, that now we see shakshuka, for instance, on, on every brunch everywhere, menu. Everywhere, yeah. right. But I'm also thinking of some of the... Um, some of the Arab, uh, some of the the other spices and, and fruits. Um, I'm thinking sumac in particular. Suddenly, sumac has become the rage. I mean, nobody used that, or you know, in, in their cooking. Uh, well, it's square one. We had it in our fatouche. There you <laughs> go. In See? the 80s and 90s. <laughs> yes, but you but were part of the revolution. Available now. <laughs> I was in Iran last year, and there's a shaker of sumac on every table, huh. which is sort of, I mean, like we have salt and pepper. They yeah. have sumac. That's great. And so you found if a dish was a little flat, you just picked up that shaker and shook a little sumac on it. Yeah. But there are other flavors, like za'atar is around now. Yes. And pomegranate molasses, much more right. use of that. Um, as people become familiar with flavors, well, I always worry that there's overkill. All of a sudden, you know, people latch onto it, and then they're going to make it. Do you remember when sun-dried tomatoes first came oh, out? Yeah, and you got example. to the point where you thought, if I ever see another one, I'm going to die. <laughs> I just can't stand it. Well, we tend to do this. We go, you know, we go overboard. Instead of saying, you know, does it work here? Should it be in this dish? Uh, or is it just something to use to be hip? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's trendy. I mean, food is trendy, but and and you do a good job of of um, the glossary, telling people what a lot of these different um, spice combinations are and ingredients are, so nobody has a question. They can just go to the glossary and find one of those unusual looking ones and make it trendy. You see? <laughs> no, dear, please don't make it trendy. We'll be um, sick of it. <laughs> right, but. Um, when I said that you you were using sumac at you know at square one, but then of course I um, 
reference the fact that you were part of that whole food revolution, the California food revolution. At the top of the show, I don't think you were able to hear it, but I did talk a lot about your book, Inside the California Food Revolution. Thank you. It's a, Thank you. It's a wonderful book, and it's a, it's a great read, 30 Years That Changed Our Culinary Consciousness. And um, tell me a little bit. You, you said in that that, you know, once a revolution uh, ends, it's time to tell its story. Is I mean, what really prompted you to, to sort of delve let's say, back into it, go back, go backwards? To- well, you know, it's interesting because when you're part of something, you don't see it. You don't step back and see what's happening. And I remember when I was I was the chef at Chez Panisse in the cafe mm-hmm. when this California cuisine started getting mentioned. Marion Burroughs was out here and wrote about it in the New York Times and. And all of a sudden, we'd start getting calls from the press. Are you cooking California cuisine? Well, those of us that were cooking, we what the hell are they talking about? We have no idea. Right. And it's only with hindsight that you can see that we were doing things here that they weren't doing in other parts of the country. Partly, it was geography. We had these long seasons. We had an abundance assortment of different kinds of vegetables and fruits to play with that weren't everywhere. And we had a bunch of very independent chefs who opened restaurants with little cooking experience. I mean, I had never run a restaurant before. Jeremiah had, didn't train in a restaurant. Alice didn't train in a restaurant. Judy Rogers. I mean, none of us. We just opened restaurants because we wanted to cook for people. And then we had the blessing of having very broad-minded customers who were willing to go on this journey with us. And they asked a lot of good questions. They wanted to know who was raising the lamb that we had on the menu and where did this vegetable come from and who was the farmer and could they get it? So that's how a revolution starts. It's sort of this thing that's happening all the time around you and you don't see it till 30 years later you step back and you think, wow, we changed the way people eat in this country. That's right. And, and one of the things I mentioned is that now it's so, sort of you know ubiquitous on all menus. You open them up and and it says local and um, you know pasture raised or you know right. field, a salad People of field greens know. right but that was I mean in the in the sixties or and even the seventies my goodness you you know nobody opened, cared nobody, nobody knew right I mean it, it wasn't an interest right right well it's it's certainly um, uh, a pleasure for me to to read about old friends in the book but for people who you know younger people who are so into uh, I think you know mindful eating and um, and the food whether they call themselves locavores or just you know they're really concerned about what's on their plate and and the food that they eat and I think that book in particular is should be you know should be uh, required reading for I agree with you completely <laughs> of course but you know, I also interesting. when that book first came out obviously those of us in California were very interested in it because it was all the people we knew but for a while we couldn't get any interest in the East Coast because it didn't happen there mm-hmm. and and it took a while for people to say you know maybe we should read this maybe we should know what's going on but <laughs> I think we have mindful eating what I really want to promote is mindful cooking also to get people back into the kitchen and with the Mediterranean Jewish table this is not restaurant food. You don't need tons of expensive equipment. You can make this food. It's food from home cooks. And also today you can get all the ingredients. I mean, my God, I use a particular kind of tahini, alwadi, and my one Middle Eastern store went out of business after 40 years, and I was looking for it. Amazon had it in a six-pack. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it just knocked me out. Sure. I thought, well, all right, you can get dried rose petals and jasmine blossoms from places like Amazon or spice spice stores online. I mean, there's nothing that you can't get now, so there's no excuse not to be cooking. That's right. Well, I see. Um, I see so much of the the California food revolution in the Mediterranean Jewish table in the new book because it's it just it, I don't know it's something about the um, well certainly California and the Mediterranean share a lot in common yes we and, are the same latitude I mean California is a Mediterranean country we cultivate what is being grown in the Mediterranean and our seasons are similar mm-hmm. and so consequently there will be a similarity in our food you know Absolutely. And I love how, you know, all these different flavors um, come to um, come to be combined in these recipes that are also kosher and uh, and appropriate for, you know, the holiday table, but not but not for anyone to think that they would limit themselves, that these recipes are very, you know, very encompassing of all of all kinds of foods and and very, very interesting. And mouth-watering, I have to say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> they are. Well, Joyce, it has certainly been a pleasure to hear from you, from from the mouth, <laughs> from from, and especially, um, you know, with your background, knowing what you know, what's what has gone on, where we've come from in food. It has been quite a journey, indeed. Thank you. And I'm- I think it's, and I think you have have. Uh, wrapped it up nicely in in the book Inside California Food Revolution. But all of your books are, you know, they've got a certain, there is a sense and a flavor to all of them that that uh, kind of encompasses all the Mediterranean regions. And uh, this book, the new book, the new Mediterranean Jewish Table as well, it is it is really an interesting, very, and it's a beautiful book. Um, thank you. I've gotten a couple mentions on how beautiful the cover is. So thank you so much for sharing your time, and I look forward to cooking a lot of recipes from the book as well. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to have talked to you today. It's been my pleasure, too. Great. And thanks for listening. It's been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.